This is the Real Digital Transformation podcast series, empowering technology and business professionals to succeed with digital transformation. Now, here's your host, best-selling author Thomas Earl. Hi, this is Thomas Earl, and welcome to another episode of the Real Digital Transformation podcast series. This is part two of our two-part interview with design thinking and AI expert, Art Lichthart. Let's begin. So you have talked about customer centricity. It's one of the fields that you specialize in. How specifically um, does AI or can AI be utilized to enhance customer centricity? It would be great if you could uh, share some examples of successful AI utilization, which actually made a significant difference, improvements in the customer experience. The, I think the, the the main example is what the big tech companies, the social platforms have been doing the last five years. You can have an opinion on that, but hey, they put the customer first, they collect as much data as possible, possible they use all kind of algorithms in order to create de- their view on the ultimate customer centricity um, it is already there every time we use internet uh, we are being served as a customer uh, you can say um, um, I think the good part is that more and more people are aware that this is happening I think a very good part as well especially here in the European Union is there's much more regulation now implying that hey you cannot do that automatically. You have to inform the customer what data you're using. You have to inform them what kind of uh, functions uh, and algorithms you're using. Um, customers, civilians should be in control of their own data. If they want uh, to remove it, hey, you have to comply to that. They have the right to be forgotten. I like that language uh, as well. So uh, all data have to be, be able to remove as well. Um, but I think the best example and best is according to your opinion. Uh, I'm looking from a European point of view, and I think the European trends are very much fitting with my view that people have to take care, have to be in charge of their own data, and have to be very, give consent first before a company starts using the data and all kinds of algorithms. Uh, But you cannot deny that it has been very customer-centric, these trends. Uh, Well, what what we see furthermore, is, is a further development of chatbots. Uh, I think the first generation were not so brilliant. Uh, I don't speak many people who are really impressed by what chatbots uh, could do in the past. Uh, they never understand your question. They're only trained on the frequently asked questions and that's it. <laughs> but, but we're really seeing progress there as well. Um, and I think one of the key things in there is that chatbots should be humanized a bit more in their way of interaction. Uh, they should, for example, not be scripted, asking the same questions in a certain order all the time. They should be able to ask only relevant questions. They should look more for the intention of the, per- intention of the person asking the question than just taking the literal uh, form of that. Um, I think we're making progress there already. Second generation and third will be way better than before. And what is also happening now is that it's not only using um, question and answer games, but using the data available of the customer already in the conversation, which Mm -hmm. will definitely make it more personal. Um, 
if you would ask me, are there good examples? I think they're coming up right now. There's some company, and that is especially the companies that are getting more and more positive results by their customer using this chatbots or digital assistants as well. Um, talking about digital assistants, um, the employees of companies are more and more assisted by digital assistants that started already in the call center giving all available information on the customer, looking at um, the phone calls that had been made before. You're actually describing some of these situations in your book uh, as well. Uh, but we're adding much more and more knowledge than on this customer and on what he's demanding or asking and what the answer could be and how it could be served. And AI is being integrated in that as well, mm -hmm. um, which makes it more intelligent, more clever, more customer-centric. Uh, that is good. And we're doing it also in back office employees right now. It's, it's not about automating their work, but kind of giving them the knowledge to handle, handle a case, a complex case file that has to be, uh, has to be looked at. Um, mm -hmm. and, and there is already, uh, yeah, a lot of companies are really seeing the power of that, having positive business cases, having positive feedback. So this is really on the breakthrough side now. Um, and that is also customer centricity because, uh, well, for example, take uh, the larger government organizations in the Netherlands, for example, the tax administration, um, they have to handle all kinds of different taxes for millions of civil, uh, citizens um, using traditional IT systems. Well, having said that, we all know that traditional IT systems can only go so far, maybe 50% of all the law and regulations that should be applied by traditional IT can be applied with these rule-based systems, which also means that there's 50% of law and regulation that cannot be handled by these systems. Mm -hmm. uh, what we're looking at with AI is all kinds of possibilities to kind of hire this figure. How can we implement law and regulation that cannot be put into traditional systems because it's subjective, it's ambiguous, it's a kind of uh, it's not a standard situation, but a more complex situation. It might be a situation where some kind of judge did a judgment, very specific. But hey, from that, from now on, that should be applied to all cases. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they cannot handle it with traditional IT. And with AI, we are very much more capable of doing, you could even say doing justice to everybody's personal individual situation, mm -hmm. assisting, in this case, the tax worker uh, in their... And these cases are really coming up now as well. Uh, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. That generation of chatbot or digital assistant, which is capable of processing, analyzing, loading up your customer data before it even begins speaking with you, and then having a conversation with you that is unique to you, to how it has assessed you as a customer based on your profile. Where are we with that? How common is that? Is that something still coming soon or have you seen that in, in projects yet? I, I, I see it very often in the, in the marketing of companies providing uh, these services. Uh, according to me, there are some good examples, but only partially. It's, it's not the integral solution as you're just describing. But this is uh, the coming two years. This will come into existence, uh, definitely. Yeah. This will be the yeah. new norm. It makes perfect sense. I mean, the data yeah. is there. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It, it is. And then, in combination with, for example, that a customer should give consent before 
that he can also make it transparent, that he can also see what has been done, what data has been used, that he can influence that as well. Mm -hmm. um, actually, this kind of transparency was already required over here with the traditional IT systems. And right. you, you could question the number of companies that are really compliant. But it's even stronger now with this AI regulation and AI act. Uh, so it, it's interesting to see. And I think it's a very good movement as well. Uh, explainable, transparent. Um, yeah. And then, of course, the AI is able to continue to learn about you as an individual customer based on its interactions with you. If you're not happy with its first conversation, it'll try to improve based on however it collects feedback or based on how it performs facial recognitions of your expressions, perhaps. But um, that yeah. that whole learning process, I think, you know, once this does become the norm, that will continue to evolve and improve until we reach a point where we, we are talking with a customer service representative and it may be hard to distinguish whether it is human or AI because it is such a personalized experience that we're, that we're receiving from that. Yeah, technically, this will definitely become possible in the coming years. Um, and that is probably also a very valid reason to start thinking, okay, how far do we want to go? Uh, moral, um, ethical AI, explainability. Uh, the AI Act in Europe is also stating that uh, if you have, for example, a voice interface, a person should be able to distinguish the fact that he's talking to a normal human either to a robot uh, voice. So, I mean, th this is a very uh, fast moving domain of law and regulation as well. And it's all about people trying to find, okay, hey, we don't regulate because we want to regulate because, but we have to find a balance in, well, maybe even the fundamental rights of humans versus how do we want to implement technology? Yeah. 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 You know, despite all the potential of the technology, um, and, and all the advancements we can build with it um, will always be, be constrained to the parameters of regulation and law within different regions. I wonder if um, we'll reach a point where there'll be a requirement to give the customer the ability to hit a reset button if they're not happy with its relationship with the AI. Perhaps the AI is not effective for them or the customer doesn't like the tone of the AI it'll have the right to click a reset button and start fresh. Erase my data, forget about me, and now process me for who I am as of now. You know, I, um, if, we, if we had to bet on this, I would go along with you. Yeah, I think that that point might, uh, might be reached at a certain, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it, so it, it is a very interesting, um, in, interesting movement because we're, we're now at a stage that technology is very powerful. So it's really time to think how we want to use technology uh, for human reasons, for humanity. And, uh, um, and not even talking about warfare, for example, because that, that is also a very valid discussion. And, uh, and, and this feedback learning that you were describing, um, the systems we're making now, yeah, they could be used feedback learning from customer experience. What we're doing mostly is to use the subject matter experts for feedback learning to make the, the content, the knowledge base better, as you can say. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly, because it's not just the AI learning on its own. 
we can have data scientists assess feedback it collects and they can shape how it learns from it. And yeah. that's an important part of this. You know, not everything has to be carried out autonomously or, or probably shouldn't be, right? So yeah, that, that factors into this because the organization may have certain business objectives that may determine how it augments the AI. It might not just be a pure AI customer relationship. No, that's why we very much believe in this knowledge graph technology because it's still a way of modeling domain knowledge in order to use it on AI. Mm -hmm. uh, you might have heard the last uh, week or two, it is buzzing around the internet on the new open AI application called uh, Jet GPT. Mm -hmm. It is so powerful to generate uh, even the works for, for, for students to generate a little text that is needed to generate answers, to generate uh, your CV if you want. Uh, yeah, it's very powerful. It's one of those large language models technology, but it cannot do everything. Mm -hmm. If it is trained, it will be trained on, well, you could say uh, the common knowledge on the internet available and it will remain there. There's no way you can do explainable AI with it. Um, so yeah, it is good in a certain function. And when you mm -hmm. look at an AI solution as a whole and you're, you're kind of constructing it with all kinds of components, you could definitely find a use for this kind of component as well. But it's not everything. It's not part of the whole solution that actually... Yeah. So, so this is, yeah, but this chat GPT is so powerful now that the whole world is buzzing. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So let's talk a bit about the concepts behind AI. <clears throat> Those concept, concepts that you consider important specifically to digital transformation. Those that influence how you carry out a digital transformation. How would you categorize those? How would you prioritize those? Yeah, I think I think one uh, or the first two or three I would mention, we already discussed um, on number one, actually is the huge potential of AI. So potential that you really have to look at ethical uh, aspects as well. Um, as morale, it's sometimes called human AI. Um, it's like looking, hey, can we find it and can we implement it in such a way that it supports what we find important in our society? It might even be in law and regulation. Um, I would put the, definitely put that on number one. Number two is kind of uh, closely related because it's the influence of law and regulation. Every AI project we're doing here in Europe has to kind of show that it is compliant uh, with uh, privacy regulation, the new AI Act coming up. Um, and you could say that is restrictive, but you can also turn it around and say it offers new possibilities as well, uh, newer, new products and services. If you're the first one who is compliant with all these new uh, law and regulation, you might have an advantage on your competition uh, in the kind of services you're providing. Um, so I put that on number two. And hey, juridical knowledge in the IT world is not common. It, it, it was not already in the traditional IT world. Uh, there's not a lot of people who can make this bridge between what does law and regulation say and what does it mean for the architecture of my AI solution. So this is really t something a company should look at or, or search for advice, uh, mm -hmm. I think. <coughs> no, nobody wants to become uh, an article on the front page that you discriminate it uh, within your AI solution. Right, so, right. Uh, 
And the third one, we also mentioned it already. Um, I would state that your AI really needs architecture. <coughs> Sorry. Should not keep it a black box, but should open it and look at the contents and see how you want to implement it. <coughs> what kind of components, what kind of functions. There's always choices to be made. Um, I gave this example like, hey, we can train one model on theoretical model, uh, theoretical knowledge. We can train another model on all the applied knowledge that is in your databases. We can just show the two results. We can show a difference. We can think how we can make a feedback loop using your subject matter experts, etc., etc. You should open it up. And then you have the best possibilities to also figure out digital transformation, how it can influence your products, services, processes, mm -hmm. even your employees, your place in the ecosystem, etc etc i think you need to open it up in order to do uh, really think out your digital transformation uh, there um yeah i'd like to mention data as well uh, data is fascinating because i think the last 10 15 years we were talking about big data and then we said okay big data is one thing but data quality is very important as well i think there's there's a more important dimension now um, mm -hmm already very traditional but the it's about the meaning of data semantics um for years and years we've been building these traditional it systems from a paradigm that hey if you do a proper analysis and a proper data model um, you can describe very precisely what each element in your database means well wake up you can't we're talking about natural language here Context is important. People use words differently. The same word might have completely different meaning in another context. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a kind of internal joke at the Dutch tax administration that they have the word income. Okay, normally for a tax administration, but they have 71 different meanings of the word income. Each <laughs> time slightly different, very often connected to law and regulation. Uh, I think the semantics and the meaning of data next to quality of data will really become more and more important. And hey, there's new technologies that you can use to model this as well. The whole um, semantic web movement gave us the link data technology. Um, OWL, we can use this in knowledge graph technology. That's actually what Google is doing as well. Um, so we have new means in order also to handle the differences in the meaning of data, which, which is maybe what I find most fascinating about this whole natural language process, processing movement. Um, um, yeah, and rethinking this is also rethinking, okay, how do we implement it? What value can we get from that? If we look at this kind of uh, engine, would it even uh, create new products and services in that as well? Um, in combination with ownerships of data, much more the individual taking in charge. I think this, this concept, um, you already see it back in identity wallets or wallets in which persons can upload attributes that have been delivered by, for example, also government databases. So they are certified, they are in your wallet, and you're the one who decides how to use them. Uh, they're also uh, implemented with the proper semantics. So everybody that uses it can, can find exactly what it means, even if there's different contexts of that. Um, I find this fascinating mm. and I think this is really going to be a movement also for companies to think about how they can use it. It, it. it also means that if you're an owner of the data, or at least if you have the right to own the data, 
and it might be for a certain period of time until the real owner says, no, delete me, like you said, the delete button uh, earlier on. If you have the right to own this data and you have the right to, to put functionality on top, that gives opportunities to deliver products and services. And this is a whole new paradigm that is, I think it's going quick now already. 10 years ago, everybody said like, forget it, privacy, internet, your data are everywhere. This has completely changed into this kind of new paradigm. I think, I think this is this is a couple of the most important things uh, right now that are also very much used in AI and can be very much used for digital transformation purposes as well. Yeah. Um, Art, I have a question for you. Let me know if, if you've had this experience, but based on what you were just describing about the interpretation of data, the semantics, establishing the accurate meaning of data as it relates to what was communicated, what was collected, and as it relates to how it should be used in a business. If if you've not been doing that correctly, if you've inadvertently been misinterpreting volumes of data you've collected over the past year or two, and you just come to the realization based on some occurrence or some review or some analysis of what you've collected so far that <clears throat> we shouldn't have interpreted this as that. And because we did, it's actually flawed. Um, our reports, our, our decision-making, it, you know, it, it's introduced flaws into the output of our data science systems. If you, if you realize that, um, what do you do? What can you, uh, clean the data? Can you update the semantics historically? Is that, um, feasible to do so if you've already processed and your models have been learning based on, you know, all this, can you unlearn some of what they've interpreted? <clears throat> if you reach that point, because I think organizations, um, who've brought in AI perhaps too hastily or with not enough in-house expertise as part of a pilot project that looked interesting and now it's become a bigger part of what they do. They may not have taken the time or care or have had the expertise to interpret that data correctly to begin with. But now, months, years later, they realize that they should have. What, what can an organization in that situation do? And then um, sometimes I feel like, hey, I have this solution. Do you have a problem for me so I can help solving it? Uh, and, and that's not what I like to do. But at the same time, what you're describing now is quite common. And um, yeah, there is also this, if, if you start, and th this could be also part of a design session as well, your problem might just be that, not related to customers, not related to business processes or to whatever, but just saying, hey, I don't think the quality of my data is enough. You, could we have a design session of ways to think if we can, for example, use new ideas, new technologies, new paradigms to see what we can do with our data quality? We have actually been doing that just looking very often with data experts in what is the present situation? How did it come like that? I should have looked like, um, we kind of trained it order, order, uh, also on, on regulation that it should have complied with. And you do a kind of data quality, uh, assessment also with that. Uh, it is possible, definitely possible to augment data quality, including semantics. Uh, 
And semantics is, is an interesting thing because it might have changed throughout the years. Words get different meanings, but it's also possible that, for example, a certain law of regulation said from now on, uh, the 1st of January 1995, we introduce a new rule on a certain data field, which actually would mean that the content of the data field will have changed afterwards uh, in meaning. So yeah, it is possible to augment data quality using new technology. It's even possible to generate uh, uh, synthetic data, uh, which could be kind of re replacement for um, own data sources that are not useful enough. Um, it is possible to com to make comparison. This is what it should have been. This is what it is. Uh, what do we do with the differences? And then the, 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 the next question is, does it mean that you have to retrain models? Yeah, very often. That is the most practical way uh, of doing it. Um, but as I said before, um, you could almost say one model is no model. You have to train different models anyway to see what happens and, uh, and right. to find out which one is the most useful in that. Yeah. I, I, I found what you just said really interesting. It's not just about interpreting semantics accurately, but staying on top of how the sem semantics themselves may evolve over time. Semantics may change over time. And I don't know if that's something people are really thinking about. They they view a business in a certain frame and they go, this is the way it is. Let's, let's train our models. Let's develop our schemas based on this. But business changes, markets evolve, and those semantics themselves may, may change. And that's something that we have to stay on top of um, because that'll impact our data. There is a, actually, when I started in the whole IT world, it was in 1995. I started at a company called Panfox and I was sent to training, dating, data modeling, information analysis, and all those elements were already here uh, 25 years ago. Um, defining data, I, I learned it back then, is one of the most difficult things there is because of we're talking language. It can have different meanings. Uh, so how can you model data? How can you make proper definitions? Um, and yeah, I've doing various projects at uh, government organizations, keeping formal registers, like for example, the, the Chamber of Commerce having this, this register of all uh, companies in the Netherlands. They're applying law and definitely at certain points in time, the meaning of different data fields have changed. But also because in the past they used to have, I think, 14 or 15 regional organizations together forming the Chamber of Commerce. Each region was okay working about the same, but not completely. So the data fields might have just a little bit of a different meaning depending on the regional office that was using it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sometimes if you look in historic data, uh, the people have been working there for years and years and years. They can even name the name of a colleague that used to be kind of creative at a certain data field uh, using it. So yeah, th this is fascinating. and and. It is possible to, to look into that with new technology, uh, but very often together with subject domain experts and just try to see what can we do in this situation. By the way, these formal registers, if they're handled properly, they have a very good um, historical timelines in it. Every change is registered, everything that is changed, even the mistakes, the mistakes will still be there. The mistake will be uh, will be checked and will be released, but will also be added. Uh, the, the whole formal history can be found back, and you should also have that both for semantics and even for for business rules for rules mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Just one quick question: 
just relating back to the scenario I described before, where an organization realizes its data is flawed, its um, systems have learned things the wrong way. In a circumstance like that, um, the organization can either try to repair what it's accumulated, but if it has massive amounts of data, um, the organization could also just choose to start over and just say, okay, let's just wipe it out, put in the correct um, systems, train, train the systems the correct way, um, make the interpretation accurate, make sure there's no data bias or anything else, make it as clean and pure and relevant as possible, and just start over. Um, how would you advise them? Is it just based on, you know, individual circumstances? Or is that is that a valid option to just wipe the slate clean? Well, the, the wiping out is, is hardly ever done. But starting a second set of databases next to it is a very valid option. And you can use the older data set also to generate the new, sometimes synthetic uh, data set doesn't have to become the new truth, but it can be made so useful that you can train your models on it and, um, and um, be much more accurate. Um, mm -hmm. um, but but wiping out, I, I don't know what your experience is, but most systems have not been made in order to uh, be wiped out. Um, and, and most of the time they're just being, uh, once they're not being used, they're being shut down and the copy will remain somewhere uh, for, for future purposes. Sure. But using these data to start a new database or set of databases, yeah, definitely possible and, and very often a good solution. Yeah. That, that's, that's an excellent yeah. solution because then you have the yeah. best of both worlds, but you're not reliant yeah. on the flawed yeah. data until perhaps you can get around to, to repairing it. Um, yeah, and, and this is bringing us, bringing us back to, as I said before, 25 years ago, what is the most important in information technology? Information, modeling information, semantics, quality. Mm -hmm. And we kind of lost it, this, this discipline. I think somewhere in the 1990s, in the beginning of 2000, we still used to have a lot of data modelers and experts. They got kind of lost and they were replaced by data scientists and also data stewards, but they kind of lack this, this old fashioned discipline and data scientists trying to make uh, meaning out of huge data sets. But that's not, not the only way. The proper way should also be modeling, going into your semantics and really um, take, take a hold of your business domain. Yeah. Super. I have one last question for you, Art. I, we've talked a lot about AI. Um, customer centricity, design thinking, organizations, we, we know the benefits of design thinking, um, but based on your deep experience with design thinking, carrying out that process, working with different teams and organizations, can you give us your top five pitfalls, challenges, or risks when it comes to design thinking based on the lessons you've learned? What not to do? Uh, I don't know if I can make a top five. But I can mention uh, mention a couple. Um, one of the pitfalls is that um, people are not familiar with AI and have no clue in how it works. They kind of have either overestimation or underestimation. Um, and if they're not willing just to have a closer look a bit of a deep dive in what it actually is and how it works, then then it's never going to solve that. Um, 
So pitfall number one is these people who are either overestimating or underestimating uh, the possibilities uh, there. Um, one uh, the the second pitfall, but but I'm, I I prefer to turn it around. It's not really a pitfall. What what I see in practice is that people are really interested and enthusiastic the moment they start participating in, for example, design sessions or in, inspiration workshops. Um, <clears throat> they tend to be maybe a bit over enthusiastic, uh, um, and then it might uh, the conclusions of the first prototype or even the first uh, solution in uh, in production. Well, they might be a bit disappointed there as well. Um, that is a pitfall. Uh, on the other hand, it is fun to work with enthusiastic people who are really keen on uh, looking what are the possibilities, what could we do with it. But managing the expectations, expectations. back a bit uh, is sometimes difficult. In uh, Third pitfall, but it's not so much in design thinking, because in, the, in this first phase of design thinking, you end up with a working prototype, ideally. Hey, but that is not production. Getting a prototype into a production environment is going through the whole process of creating a team, asking permission for the new technology to be implemented, sometimes training people, uh, go through all the loops of security requirements, technical application maintenance. It is, it is quite a long process, and I think it is very valid before you have an um, AI solution into production. It might be one of the reasons that some companies don't they tend to do not in their own environment, their own clouds, but just going for a cloud-based solution of another company. Mm -hmm. Can be very valid, um, but between if they want to implement it in their own environments, the time between, hey, we have a working prototype and hey, we have it into production can be quite long, which means the design process, the thing, design thinking process works like very well, but then they have to wait quite some time before seeing it back into production afterwards. Yeah. I think that this is a kind of a top three that we're experiencing now. Um, I have yeah. one question. What about choosing the right team? So you have everyone in a room, but if you don't have, if you haven't selected the right contributors, representatives, or if you perhaps not not just haven't included everyone, but perhaps have included the wrong individuals who come to the process with irrelevant information or a wrong approach or perhaps some form of negativity, um, who who does the selection? Is is it you that determines you as the expert that says these are the people we want to talk to, these are not the people we want to talk to, or you know, how, how do you do that? And have you seen like negative or, or um, not always negative, but uh, unproductive influences that have maybe hindered the process? Yeah, not so often. What, what, what we always do is say like, hey, um, before we start the design thinking process, we do our homework, which also means interaction with the company, explaining how the process works, explaining what kind of representatives we're looking for. Uh, for example, this, this subject matter expertise is always crucial. Um, so we kind of have our standard roles that we'd like to be present. Um, we have interaction with the company in question to see what people could do with. My preference would be that I also have a short interview with each of them just to get acquainted, knowledge, explain a bit uh, what we're going to do, uh, to feel if they're enthusiastic or not. Um, 
Um, it helps if you have a longer term relationship with the company, because then you kind of know what you're looking for. And still you have this formal procedure that people have to be appointed uh, by their management. But uh, I think that really helps. Um, yeah, we, we did sessions as well in, in which we did, we had no control on the participants. Um, it, it didn't really harm the process, but it's, it's better to do some homework and uh, ideally have some bilateral interviews before with uh, the people uh, present. Yeah. Mm -hmm. my, yeah. And my last thought is, um, what about ensuring uh, representation of, of the, the end user? So these design sessions have contributors from within the organization. Do you, how do you make sure that the end users for which you are designing um, the front end, the customer experience, do you, do you just bring in feedback or survey results, or do you actually have, um, human contributors that speak on their behalf, essentially? Yeah, we, um, sometimes we have, there's even clients of the organization in question, uh, participating, um, we always have representatives of uh, their own employees, front office, back office, depending a bit on uh, on where we're looking with our uh, design session. Um, lately, we did a session for a, a Dutch government organization on which the people of front office and back office, they were kind of ideal candidates because we were allowed to have the seniors. They're also in charge of the, the knowledge uh, base um, of the knowledge involved. So the 50% of the time, they were just helping customers either handling cases uh, internally. 50% mm -hmm. of the time, they were the, um, continuously maintaining the workings, the instructions, the procedures, the guidelines, how to work for the fellow uh, less experienced co uh, colleagues. It was There was a kind of perfect combination for the design workshop. Uh, yeah. Super. Yeah. So, Art, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I, I'd really like to conclude by learning a bit more about what you do with Y Digital, what you focus on as an organization, and and where you're going now uh, in terms of the services you provide in relation to all of the technology evolution that's ahead of us that'll impact the scope of what you do. Tell us more about that, please. Yeah, I'd be very happy to. Uh, maybe some personal introduction first. Um, well, I'm a European based in the Netherlands, uh, <coughs> as you're aware of. Um, more than 25 years of experience being an architect, uh, the last 10, 15 years or so in very large transformation programs. Um, and in 2020, I kind of changed that role again by starting uh, being the co-founder of this new company, uh, Y Digital. Um, I did that very deliberately. I enjoy, really enjoyed my job as being a lead architect in these large transformation programs, but hey, you can only handle one customer at a time. They're very intensive uh, changes. The fun part is that you're always acting on boardroom level, but also within the working environment of the people doing the work in the IT department, you're kind of the only person that crisscrosses the whole organization from top to bottom, from left to right. I enjoyed that very much. But I saw this new AI trend coming and already from 2010 on, I was interested. Uh, and I ran into some former colleagues uh, that, I, that were working somewhere else. We did projects together. They founded an AI company, they sold it, and we kind of had the idea, okay, let's start a new one together. This is really, we see the potential. We really think that we can improve companies with it. We can improve people's lives with that even, if you use some of the AI uh, possibilities. For me, it was a new challenge as well. 
being in charge of digital transformation, building our consultancy practice, um, selecting more junior and media people in order to train them and having taking over my role. I, I kind of feel it's my age now to do this kind of thing instead of doing the programs on my own, uh, which was fun as well. Um, yeah, and with Y Digital, um, as, as said before, we're into natural language processing, uh, which is really fascinating. Language is fascinating, but also how can you make knowledge out of all these texts that are available? <clears throat> the internet in documents they might still be in people's minds the the more the most experienced subject matter experts it might be in the way we communicate in voice and that's why we uh, we wanted to focus on that um around 25 people now very international i think we have seven nationalities um main language english we started uh, uh, an office in vietnam because we mm. want to be present in asia as well um looking forward to starting new offices in europe uh, so everything we do um, has to be made, as we say, repeatable. So our whole, our whole uh, approach already from the strategic sessions we discussed uh, to the, through uh, the design thinking, coming up with proposals, realization. Uh, we have our run book and we, we kind of standardize the approach. From day one, we've been building our own AI platform using uh, open source components. That came in very handy in the projects we're doing, but the underlying vision was as well that we want to productize solutions on top of the platform. Um, and we have now already the first customers that are taking solutions uh, based on a license uh, fee that we're running for them. Um, yeah, and we're now kind of in the process, okay, we started with more like the technical AI people who have fundamental knowledge of AI. Many of them have their PhD in neuroscience or in language, uh, for example. And we're kind of building it up now towards our consultancy practice. Technology is not the, the guarantees for success. It's all about digital transformation. Uh, your latest book, you could say, how to transform organizations successfully to really be able to use the power of technology. We, um, we are really also into, um, as you can say, empowering humans. From the point of view that technology is so powerful, we should all continuously be thinking about how can we improve humanity? How can we improve customer contacts? How can we improve the employees within the organization uh, with the power of AI? Uh, it's the kind of passion we share in our company. Um, um, so we're, we're quickly expanding now. Uh, our local offices don't need to grow so much, but we want to open offices uh, at least in Europe and also uh, the first one in Asia is already there. Um, yeah. And, start productizing for now ai is reachable for larger companies that can spend well considerable amounts of money on ai solutions we want to lower that barrier so that also small and medium-sized uh, enterprises can start um, profiting from the power of ai um, by offering products on top of our, our platform um, so this strategy is for, uh, for now it's been working like we envisioned it three years ago hey we have the same thing, mission, vision, strategy. Keep on working and uh, rewinding it. Um, <laughs> but so far, this is working very well, doing interesting projects. And uh, and it is a fascinating time, uh, if I'd like to add that. Yeah. Super. Thank you, Art. Yeah. Thank you again. It was a fascinating um, discussion and so much to look forward to. Um, I hope we can have you back soon. We can perhaps drill down to some of these topics a bit more. But thank you again for your time today. It was a pleasure uh, to be in the show, Thomas.
Thank you for listening. Follow Thomas on LinkedIn 